want to know you better because of this morning. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Francis Epps, at the end of the 1800s, began a small Bible study and a prayer group in his living room in what was then to become Orlando. This Bible study and prayer group became what is now this congregation here at St. Luke's. His grandfather was a really learned and famous man, Thomas Jefferson. He loved to study and read many books. He had a Bible, in fact, uh, but he took a pair of scissors to it. But that's not what we're going to deal with today. If you would have asked Thomas Jefferson, could you recite the Nicene Creed, he would have honestly told you, I love saying the first four words. We believe in God. And he would have stopped right there. You see, and, and maybe for some of us here today, it's like, well, that's kind of where I'm starting. That's my baseline. Well, I'm, I'm glad you're there, but I hope that St. Paul and Jesus can take you a little bit further so that you can move beyond that and say, we believe in God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and of his Son, Jesus Christ. Is that enough simply to believe in God? Well, here's the thing. If you believe in God as Father, you must believe in God the Son because He is the only one who reveals the Father to us. The church in Colossae had, had, had graduated, if you will. They'd graduated from the gospel. They'd graduated from Jesus onto bigger and better things, or so they thought. And that's why Paul is writing this letter. And you'll read more about it when we get to chapter 2. But here, Paul is writing them because every Sunday we, receive, we recite the Nicene Creed. Paul quotes in the first five verses what is probably, according to many scholars, not something that Paul wrote. In fact, it's an early uh, creedal statement. It's, it's a hymn. It's a song. Some believe that it might have even been written by the people at Colossae. And Paul's saying... You say this, you, you might even sing this, but do you understand this? Do you stand on this? The church in Colossae had been beset by what some would say is, is the beginnings of this, this kind of Gnostic idea that there's this secret spiritual knowledge that you and I need to get. And by, by getting these proper keys and proper passwords, you can make your way through different levels of spirituality up to God himself. As Canon J. John, who's a canon evangelist across the pond, puts it, he says, if you remove Christ from Christian, you are left with Ian, and Ian never saved anybody. That's exactly what Paul is telling the people of Colossae. And the thing is, they had found Jesus. He had saved them. He had redeemed them. They had been washed by Christ. They had been saved through faith in Christ. They have been adopted by Christ into God the Father's family. 
But the way that C.S. Lewis puts it, he says this in his Screwtape Letters. He said, it's, it's the story of one senior demon writing a more junior demon, and the junior demon is fretting that, that people are encountering and receiving Jesus. And, and, and the demon says, the, the senior demon writes in this uh, parody, he says, D -d don't worry about it. If people receive Jesus, that's fine. If you can't stop them from re receiving Jesus, then just dilute that Christ out of them by adding stuff to it. And the people of Colossae had gotten obsessed with, with the, the marks of their religion being, uh, getting great attention to special dates and to special festivals and to special religious duties and to special weird diets and to astrology and to angelology and a whole manner of things. All things mystical and esoteric. And yet they lost the very core of it all, Jesus. So I want to unpack three things that St. Paul tells us about Jesus. It's precisely what Jesus was tearing, telling Mary and Martha. I want you to choose me and not the things that surround me. Choose me. Let's look at verses 15 through 20, if you will. But the first thing that we see is that, that we are looking at Jesus' divinity. Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus is the human word face of God. He is the seen, unseen God. As Karl Barth put it, Jesus is the very center of the creed. He holds the creed together. We had gotten so lost and caught up in all the trappings of, of our faith that we actually lost Jesus. That's what Paul is telling the church at Colossae. You see, Christology is the test of your true doxology. Christology is the test of your true doxology. This, this, this prayer that I said, this, this song that was written in Colossae uh, is, is worship, but it's also warfare. It's prophetic, but it's also polemic. It's telling you about Jesus, but it's also telling you who Jesus isn't. Jesus wants to bring us back to a knowledge and love of him. The missionary uh, with the China Inland Mission by the name of John Oswald Sanders put it this way, worship is the adoring contemplation of God as he has revealed himself in Christ. It's about him. It's to him. It's for him. And to the extent that it's a celebration of what he has done in us and for us, it's not about us. It's about his divinity. It's said that Raphael once approached Michelangelo and he asked for some feedback or input on this painting he was doing of Jesus. And Michelangelo took a lunch break and he probably went to go have some good gnocchi or something like that. And when he came back, he found... Uh, on the portrait that he was painting of Christ, the, these big words painted over the portrait in Latin saying, amplius. Michelangelo had ruined the whole portrait of Jesus. Or so Raphael thought. 
Michelangelo was saying, your Jesus is too small. Amplify him. Make him bigger. Make him greater. If you're going to do Jesus, he's got to be a big Jesus. Amplius. That's what we see in this early song. That's what we see in this early creed. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The Colossians need to magnify, glorify, and make Jesus large. Jesus is divine. And, you know, you may have heard people say, oh, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. But is that because they think desperately high of Jesus? Or is that because they think desperately low of God? That Jesus is this kind of godish person. He's kind of like this, this, he's got a little bit of the spark of the divine. No, God is so big and so powerful that he has decided to co-join, to contract, and to enter the world in a little backwater neighborhood of the province of the Roman Empire and be wedded God and flesh and blood in the womb of a, of a young Jewish maiden. That's a big God that becomes that small. Amplified. Jesus is not a mishmash. He's not a little bit of mush. He's not a, a tertium quid, some third thing that's half God, half man. Paul is saying that is not the case. And somehow this weird mysticism had robbed them of a real understanding of who Jesus was. Their image of Jesus had gotten corrupted. He is the image of the invisible God. And you know what the word image is in Greek? Icon. You know what we, what, we, what we get from the word icon? You're right. Icon. Correct. See, it's not that hard to do theology, right? Icon. He is, and, and what that means, it's, he is the exact representation, image of who God is. And when people want to talk about God, that's great. We could say, you use the word God, I use the word God, that's phenomenal. But I won't know if you and I are talking about the same person unless we are talking about Jesus because he shows us who God is. That's why Jesus in his farewell discourse, there in John 14, he's talking to his disciples. He says, I'm, I'm out of here, right? And what are the disciples say? Okay, if you're going to leave us, that's fine. But just one thing. Show us the Father. Jesus is the human word face of God. Never was there a time when he was not. The second thing that we see is, is there in verse 16. Um, and so, incidentally, if you didn't bring your Bibles, which that's fine, I would recommend you bring it. That way you're not necessarily getting COVID or anything else from anyone else. Plus, it's a good spiritual devotion to have a Bible and read it. That's why we say, this is the Word of God. And then you can ignore anything else I say up here in this pulpit. You can ignore Reggie or Josh or Patricia if what they say contradicts what's said from that eagle lectern. Okay? So, anyways, pull out the Bibles if you can. Look at Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. Okay, but we're looking at verse 16 right now. And hopefully you can follow along with this. Here's what he says in verse 16. For by him all things were created. 
And then he goes on and he says, all things were created through him. Now, Paul says it twice in that same verse. Is that just because he didn't have a good copy of Microsoft Office 365 to tell him that you're repeating yourself? You're being redundant. Don't say it twice. No, he's trying to drive home the fact that Jesus is not only divine, but second, he is creator. He is the creator. We see his divinity. We see his creativity. Let me say this again. See, the Gnostic people thought that Jesus couldn't be fully human because, because matter was dirty and evil and the body was something to be escaped. And in fact, the body that you're trapped in is, is not really good. And, and maybe you can try to be ascetic or, or do different things to your body to, to make it more worthy of God. And, and, and the Gnostics thought that matter didn't matter. But God... The creator and becoming part of creation says that matter matters. People have been looking in the last couple years in CERN trying to smash particles in these particle accelerators and find the God particle. What is this unifying theory of it all? You know what? That's what Philo of Alexandria, the Jewish theologian, said. He said, that the logos of God is the very icon of God. Paul is drawing on that Jewish theology and he's bringing it to this Christian church and saying Jesus is the very underlying principle that holds it all together. The way that Blaise Pascal put it, he said, Jesus is the center of everything and the object of anything of everything. And he that does not know that knows nothing about nature and nothing about himself. Jesus is the center of everything. He's the creator and sustainer of it all. You see, the, the, the people in Colossae would have known the myth of Atlas, this demigod who is struggling to hold the universe up on his shoulders. They would have been familiar with the tales of Hercules. In fact, you look at the Spanish flag and, and there's actually the, the two pillars of Hercules there in the center of the yellow, the red, yellow, and red. There's the pillars of Hercules. And Hercules is struggling to hold the, the world up. And Paul's saying, no, Jesus is like one of those guys from the Harlem Globetrotters. He just got that basketball on his finger and he's just flicking it with his thumb. Jesus created it all and he sustains it all in verse 16. He's the unifying theory of it all. He is a challenge to scientism, which reduces everything to simply matter and physics and nothing spiritual or metaphysical. He challenges religious pietism, religious asceticism, and Gnosticism, which disdains created order and matter. This very hymn creates a, a challenge to pantheism, which seeks to flatten creator and creature and ignore all distinctions and say, everything is one and it's all the same. No. I remember being at a, at, a, at a Christmas pageant and one of the kids said, before Jesus was born, 
he was old. Yes, never was there a time when he was not. He's the ancient of days. If you've ever seen that beautiful icon of Jesus, the ancient of days with silver white hair, never was there a time when he was not. He upholds everything. Matter matters to God because he made it, he loves it, he sustains it, he died for it, and he's seeking to reconcile it to him. And it's all for his glory and for his preeminence, for his supremacy. The third thing that Paul tells us is it's not just about his divinity or his creativity, it's about his preeminence, that he might take the first place. Paul tells them in this passage and then also in Colossians 2.19, you've lost connection to the head, the source of it all by adding things. Growing up in Spain when I was 14 and 15 years old, I, I made some money on the side uh, working in a chicken farm. And um, if you've ever worked in a chicken farm, if you've ever seen an animal separated from its head, that's what Paul's saying. It's dead and it's messy. And what you're doing in Colossae is dead and it's messy. They'd lost connection with the head. The way that Soren Kierkegaard puts it, it's, it's like the engine of the train being decoupled from the carriage. And the carriage can move along with a little bit of momentum until it hits a hill. And the first moment that it hits a little bit of trouble, the carriage starts rolling backwards because it cannot move on its own. You've been decoupled from the head. H.G. Wells said, is it any wonder that to this day, this Galilean is just too much for our small hearts? Let's look at verses 15 through 20, if you will. Eight times Paul uses the word all. Look, verse 15. He's the firstborn of all creation. All things were created by him, verse 16. Continuing on verse 16. All things were created through him and for him, verse 17. He is before all things. The second part of verse 17. All things hold together in him. Verse 18, he's the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have preeminence. Verse 19, all the fullness of God dwells in him in bodily form. Verse 20, God was reconciling all things to himself through him. You see, here's the challenge that Paul is asking of the Colossian church. And he's asking of you and me. That church wasn't giving him his worship or the credit he was due. It's all about him. It's all for him. Is he all in your life? How much of you has he got? And how much of him do you want? Verse 18, 
He is the head of the body, the church, the nerve center. If someone were to ask you and say, who's the head of your church? Would you say, oh, it's the Archbishop of Canterbury. I mean, let's keep praying for Justin Welby, but, but God bless him. No, he's not the head. Is it, is it the Pope, the Holy Father? Well, he's a phenomenal man. He needs our prayers. But he's not the head of the church. There is no human being that is the head of the church. It's not even the sovereign of England. It is Jesus Christ. He is the head. This morning I've rushed through this hymn that you could spend volumes writing books on just those five verses. And, and I, I feel as though we've just barely stirred the waters. And Christ deserves so much more than just a few hurried words. So let me just finish with a, a quote from Malcolm Muggeridge, who was an essayist for the Guardian uh, newspaper in, in England. He wrote this in, in 1980, uh, but it seems just as apt as though it was written last week. We look back on history and what do we see? Empires rising and falling. I've heard a cracked and crazed Austrian announce to the world the establishment of a Reich that would last a thousand years. I've seen an Italian clown saying he was going to stop and restart the calendar with his accession to power. I've heard of a murderous Georgian brigand in the Kremlin, acclaimed by the intellectual elites of the world as wiser than Solomon, as more enlightened than Ahsoka, more humane than Marcus Aurelius. I've seen America wealthier and in terms of military weaponry more powerful than the rest of the world put together, so that the Americans, had they so wished, could have and could have outdone an Alexander or a Julius Caesar in the range and scale of their conquests in one lifetime. All in one lifetime. All in one lifetime. All gone. Gone with the wind. England, a tiny island off the coast of Europe, threatened with dismemberment and even bankruptcy. Hitler and Mussolini, dead and remembered only in infamy. Stalin, a forbidden name in the regime which he helped found and dominate for nearly three decades. America haunted by fears of running out of precious fuel that keeps their motorways running and the smog settling. With troubled memories of a disastrous campaign of withdrawal from Vietnam and the great victories of Don Quixote and the media when they charged the windmills of Watergate. All in one lifetime, all in one lifetime, all gone, gone with the wind. And then Paul says this. Behind the debris of these self-styled solemn supermen and imperial despots, Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, says, There stands a gigantic figure of one because of whom and by whom and in whom and through whom alone humanity can be reconciled to God the Father and have peace. This is the person of Jesus Christ. This is the one whom Paul presents to us. Jesus, the way the truth, 
and the life. 